I'm Rusty Williams, and this is Forming the Future, a series of conversations exploring the intersections of education, innovation, and physical space. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Yasha Franklin Hodge, the former Chief Information Officer for the City of Boston. Yasha was appointed by Mayor Marty Walsh to serve in the cabinet to lead the Department of Innovation and Technology. He created the city's first digital team, and their project included the award-winning Boston.gov website and the BOS 311 mobile app. Prior to working for Boston, Yasha founded Blue State Digital, where he oversaw the development of their online fundraising, email, and CRM platform that was used by a variety of not-for-profit and political clients, most notably the Obama campaigns in 2008 and 2012. Yasha, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Uh, I appreciate you uh, making time to, to talk. Uh, you and I met uh, when you were CIO, I think is right, the right title, Chief Information Officer <laughs> for the City of Boston. And um, I was really fascinated with the number of things that you did in a fairly short time with, uh, with the city of Boston. I say did because you're now enjoying a hiatus uh, away from that position. And uh, I, I wanted to you know, catch you to sort of um, catch up on some of the things you've been thinking about, some of the things you've been reflecting on. And you know, maybe a good place to start is to, now that you've had a little bit of breathing room or, or time, unstructured time uh, away from that role, kind of look back and think, you know, what is it you might be most proud of or you feel like has the most lasting impact or other insights that you have a little bit of distance from, from that role? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a great question, and uh, thank you for having me on. Um, it's, uh, it's, I've had this great opportunity to take a little bit of time uh, after leaving the city uh, a couple of months ago. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot that uh, I and the team uh, accomplished uh, during my time there that, uh, that I'm proud of. I think if I had to pick uh, two things that I am most excited about, one is uh, the city website, the Boston.gov. We mm -hmm. completely rebuilt and relaunched the uh, digital experience of interacting with the city of Boston, both to make information more accessible, to rewrite content, to be more readable, to create a modern web experience that felt friendly rather than bureaucratic. And that has not only improved the quality of, of access to city services for people in Boston, but it's serving as a platform for us to start to build new tools, new services, and rethink everything from uh, how you submit a 311 request to how you get a death certificate uh, from the city uh, and really build all of those services with uh, an emphasis on good design, on accessibility, mm -hmm. on usability uh, for people. Um, the second thing that I think I'm, I'm quite uh, proud of our work on is around improving broadband in Boston. Um, and it's a topic that, uh, you know, is, is uh, sort of sometimes discussed in, in, in public context, you know, from the lens of digital equity or digital inclusion. And we did a lot of work to really help connect some of the disconnected residents in Boston mm -hmm. to the Internet. How do we make it easier for people to get access to skills training? How do we make it easier for people to get access to equipment? And how do we actually help them get affordable broadband service uh, in the city? And that was a mix of working with private sector partners, supporting several nonprofits that were uh, engaged in this kind of work. Um, but in addition, we invested a lot in 
how do we build up the just the the core broadband infrastructure in Boston that serves everyone? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for a long time the city labored under a monopoly with a single broadband provider. We we're able to bring another new provider in who's been uh, laying thousands of miles of fiber throughout the city and who's offering now competitive service at steeply discounted rates uh, compared to the uh, previous monopoly provider. Um, we're also uh, seeing investments uh, coming in wireless technology and wireless broadband with an eye towards um, 5G, which is the, the next version of wireless service we're likely to see. And all of that has the effect of helping prepare Boston for the future and make sure that we have the connectivity that we need and that it happens in a way that actually benefits consumers with mm-hmm. real competition and real choice. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, that... Um dovetails a little bit to sort of my next thought is I, I was you know thinking about your role in the in the city and the uh, uh, the work you're doing you're, you're sort of serving at least the way I say it maybe the, you have you, you can describe others but the two primary masters uh, one is uh, is the commercial base the the companies that you want to attract into Boston and the commercial infrastructure you need to to, to support that. The second is the citizens or the community uh, that live in Boston, and I know you know what you just described is is a lot for the the citizens, but also for for the commercial base. Um, and I wondered if uh, if uh, there's you know you see sort of a uh, if you think about it that way, a if you think about it that way, and b if there's there's anything that you would say is you know specially directed at increasing the proficiency and the education level and other things related to the people who live in the city of Boston. I think what you just described about the broadband is certainly an example. Maybe just sort of build on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think broadly, you know, rarely, rarely do we really think about things as a binary between the the, the residents and uh, the commercial businesses in Boston, because so often what we find is that the issues that matter to one also matter to the other. And uh, businesses are here in Boston not because of some artifact of geography. They're here in Boston because of the people. Mm-hmm. And so the things that make this a great city to live in, the challenges that people face in this city, are also challenges that inevitably reflect to employers. You know, we have an incredible, talented uh, base of, uh, of a workforce in Boston. Um, we have you know, a, a school system, we have a, a public school system, we have uh, educational institutions that are world-renowned. You know, so we, we have this incredible human capital here, but we also have challenges like housing affordability, uh, inequality, and access to opportunity for people who uh, are lower down on the income scale. Uh, and those are challenges that really are about our residents, but they're also challenges that, that can and do matter to businesses in the city. If you're not able to tap into the full talent pool because there's a segment of the population that doesn't see opportunity in your kind of business or in what you're doing, that's going to hurt you as you try to hire the best people. Mm -hmm. If your employees struggle with finding affordable places to live or uh, suffer through difficult transportation challenges, getting to and from work, that's going to hurt you as a business just as it hurts residents. So I think, you know, when we think about a healthy city, 
Um, I always think about it as, you know, it's, it's an ecosystem and it takes all these different players and all it takes government, it takes private sector, it takes public sector, it takes individuals, it takes neighborhoods, and they all have to work together in some kind of concert. And so, you know, in government, I always tried to find places where, you know, we could do something that would have that, that broad spectrum positive impact. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when you talk specifically about education, uh, it's, uh, you know, certainly for us as a technology organization, we really uh, tried to think a lot and invest a lot in uh, how we could help get more access to technology. We did uh, work with the Boston public school system to make sure that every school in the city had a high-speed fiber optic connection right. that could allow for digital and blended learning to take place in the classroom. We worked to get private parties, uh, corporations to make discounted internet access or wireless service available to uh, students. And we helped to make sure that students and their families had access to skills training that would allow them to, to fully benefit from uh, being connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really, you know, when we think about technology, it's very easy to to jump to the idea of the you know the sort of you know young white male tech startup guy who's like you know working and living in the seaport but the reality is you know the tech industry in Boston and technology in Boston impacts everyone and mm-hmm. if we're going to have a city that is inclusive and we're going to have a city that really does provide broad based opportunity I think where the city can do its have its biggest impact is by focusing on the people and the places that are least connected and that are least plugged into the economy that we're building here in Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, let me shift gears for a second to uh, a term that uh, I think I've read you hesitate to uh, to embrace, and that is smart cities. Uh, and as CIO for a city, I think that's a logical thing to think that uh, you and your team were striving towards. Um, and uh, you know, I think I think it's one of those terms that you know is, is kind of amorphous and hard to uh, really know what it means. And so, I, so I'm going to take one example of uh, the work that uh, that's going on in Chicago called Array of Things. And mm-hmm. I've heard you discuss this and mention this as a, an example of a good project. And just to take the stance of a somewhat of a skeptic, you know, I was reading about that, thinking about uh, these systems will you'll take air quality, temperature, humidity, other readings from around the city, and make that data available for future planning. And I I, I hear that or see that and think, how useful is all that data? And it, you, you're investing a lot, collecting all that, and is it really serving you know this higher need and driving towards a smart city? And I wondered. You know, quickly, do you, uh, you know, do you have a kind of reaction to that smart city concept? And B, do you, do you see that as as something with a clear direction towards, you know, uh, uh, more tangible benefits that I'm that I'm making out in this quick overview? Sure. No, absolutely. It's a great question, and you know, I think my reaction to the term smart cities is uh, a little skeptical, in large part because for a long time it's been shorthand for technology vendors with dollar signs in their eyes coming to cities with right. some solution that they cooked up and didn't really didn't really test or 
or prove its value and, and saying, you know, hey, you got to buy this thing. It's amazing. It's going to transform your city. And that's rarely a good investment in public dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that term often comes with a sort of tech solutionism attached to it. Right. And this idea of almost like the, you know, you just need this this magical fairy dust and, and things will get better. I think the, the, the practitioners in this space, both on the government side and the private sector side who uh, are doing it right, are people who are starting from the understanding that there are real challenges in cities. There are things that we want to and can make better, and technology can be a part of that. But we don't yet know what the right mix of tools, what the right mix of data, what the right analytical systems are to actually find value and to actually make headway on problems that matter to real people. Mm-hmm. And so what we need to do is explore and learn and educate ourselves. We need to experiment by saying, what if we have data that looks like this? How would we use that in a civic context to actually improve quality of life? Mm-hmm. And rather than jumping to these uh, kind of overbuilt, you know, giant smart cities platform where every streetlight is a sensor platform or every, uh, you know, everything is instrumented. Instead, it's to start smaller and say, let's let's figure out what can we do with air quality data? Right. Um, could we use that to, uh, you know, change dynamically change traffic flows? Could we use that uh, to think about other public health interventions or other public health services that we might offer to families in a community? Um, you know, can we use uh, smart traffic cameras or smart traffic lights to uh, improve safety in the roadway and reduce injuries to pedestrians and drivers and cyclists. Um, those are the kinds of questions that we're starting to ask under the context of smart cities. I think those folks who acknowledge that these are questions are in a really interesting position to explore and experiment where the technology can go. Mm-hmm. And I should note the other thing that um, uh, you didn't mention it in your your intro about different things that uh, happened under your, your watch. Uh, another initiative was called Analyze Boston, which is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So there's data that's already being produced, even without sensors, that the city owns. And uh, you, I believe it's you, you and your team made that more and more readily accessible to people, third parties, anybody who wants to use that and um, uh, build that into apps, into uh, you know, commercial-type products. And um, uh, I, I thought that was kind of a fascinating angle of, of the not smart city, but at least uh, uh, API to the city's, uh, you know, data, uh, and that, that mm-hmm. could drive a lot of value. Yeah, I mean, I think it's part of a broader initiative of the city to uh, use data to be more transparent and mm-hmm. to be more open. So, uh, creating a website where people can access data sets. Uh, is an important way to do that and to engage the technology community and the business community with some of the assets that we have. But for us, we actually viewed that as part of a larger initiative that was really around analytics and the use of data broadly across the city. Some of that is in a very public context where we're releasing it and asking other people to, to, to find interesting use cases. But a lot of that is internal. Um, the team, uh, the citywide analytics team, which we, we formed in 2015, uh, worked with departments all across the city to uh, make data available and useful in the context of city operations. And that would run the gamut from a dashboard that would let the inspectional services commissioner see how quickly his team was reviewing and approving building permits, 
Uh, we created tools for the fire department that let them see risks and hazards at, uh, in buildings that they may be responding to. Uh, so if we knew that there was a transformer or uh, a welding permit pulled on a building, we could show that to the dispatchers as a crew was en route to respond mm -hmm. to a call there. Uh, all the way to using very sophisticated predictive analytics models to do things like predict the risk that a restaurant would have a food safety violation and prioritize inspection of those restaurants based on a variety of data factors that we were analyzing. Mm -hmm. So I think that speaks very much both to an ethos in the city to uh, be looking for ways to improve, but also I think a core uh, element of successful smart cities work, which is that it has to be grounded in the actual business of the city. Right. Technology doesn't solve anything by itself. It's not an answer, but it's a tool. And if you have good tools and smart people that are willing to really dig in and work closely with individual departments in how to improve the impact of their services, there's a lot that you can do once you start to apply all of these, this, this, this incredible toolkit. Hmm. So I have another, another just sort of uh, question. Um, it's something you just brought up about the transparency and the need for transparency in the city. Uh, but you've also emphasized in many talks that I've heard you do and the things you've written uh, the sensitivity to privacy. And mm -hmm. in a way, those are really at odds with each other. So, you know, transparency means make everything visible, and privacy mm -hmm. may, means make uh, at least it, uh, select things invisible and not shareable what, whatsoever. And I wonder mm -hmm. if you had some quick thoughts on that tension and how somebody in, in let's say, you know, in the, in the, in, within the, uh, the city government uh, needs to think about that. Yeah, no, the tension is real, and and I think cities are are starting to become more sophisticated about the challenge of maintaining privacy in an increasingly technologically driven environment. One of the scarier things that uh, one of the scarier avenues of research that has emerged uh, over the last dec decade is about de-anonymization and re-identification. Right. And the idea is that often you can take data sets which are on their own anonymized and names have been removed but there's enough information whether it be about location or behavioral patterns that you can stitch together by combining multiple data sets a, enough information to actually figure out who is represented in that in that core data set and there's been a couple of uh you know big examples of this where uh you know you find that uh, just because you, you took the names out doesn't mean somebody can't figure out who's who's there. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the the, um, the 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 I think the tension is a thing that that any city that's working with data needs to be mindful of. I mean, at our core as a public body, we have an obligation to transparency about our work. Right. We are funded by taxpayer dollars. Mm -hmm. We do work that is defined in large part by statute and rule that is intended to serve a public purpose. And if people can't uh, understand how we're spending their money and how we're achieving the public purpose, then we, even if even if the work itself is good, we fail to do our job by not providing them that visibility and that sense of. Uh, you know, reassurance and, and access to the to the to what it is that we're we're trying to do. 
at the same time, when that work touches on individuals and their private information, especially when it's things that are sensitive, it could be educational information, it could be criminal justice, it could be health, right? The city touches all of those things. And so there's a huge obligation to maintain privacy and um, protect people's personal information. Sometimes that's a legal obligation, sometimes mm -hmm. it's simply a moral obligation. So as we start to experiment with new technologies and new tools, much of the work that, that urban technologists have is to understand what do we need? What data is useful to collect? How much, what can we not collect? Because we don't think it adds a lot of value, but it creates a lot of privacy risk. Right. How do we store that data? How do we transport it? How do we analyze it? Do we aggregate data together so that we get the thing that we need, but we're not looking at an individual person's information? Mm -hmm. And then lastly, how do we communicate to people about what we're doing with their information, how we're using it, what we're not doing with it, so that there's a sense of comfort with the work? And I'll give you an example of this from our work in Boston. We did a, a project with Verizon that was uh, focused on traffic safety. It was at a specific intersection in Boston. And Verizon deployed uh, about 30 cameras in the intersection. There's a computer head unit, there's radar sensors, there's in-ground sensors, so, you know, all of this technology for essentially surveilling the intersection, but with a very specific intent to understand behavior on the road that might pose a safety hazard. Mm -hmm. How often were cars speeding? How frequently did a cyclist run a red light? Uh, where were pedestrians crossing? Were their cars in conflict with them when they were crossing? Those were the questions that we were interested in answering. So in order to do that responsibly, we worked with Verizon to develop the system in a way that video was analyzed on site and what was saved and transmitted to the city of Boston was not uh, live video feeds, but instead was counts of how frequently a given type of behavior occurred in a given time period. Mm -hmm. Uh, we put a little signs up on in the intersection at pedestrian eye level that said the city of Boston is using technology to improve traffic safety and it had a URL where you could go and in plain English we explained what we were doing. Now this is the data we're gathering, these are the tools we're using. We also said what we weren't doing and we were very clear we're not using license plate reading technology, we're not doing facial recognition because those weren't core to the goal that we had and even though some of the same equipment could be used for those purposes, uh, it was a very deliberate decision to limit what we were collecting to mm -hmm. what we actually needed to achieve a public purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think that approach of being thoughtful and considerate and communicative is at the core of resolving the tension between transparency and privacy that you just mm -hmm. highlighted. Wow. Well, that's great. I have one other kind of very common buzzword that I'm interested in your, your, your take on, and that is the future of self-driving cars and autonomous vehicles. And, uh, you know, the, I think most people see somewhat of an awkward adolescent phase coming up very soon where we've got uh, autonomous vehicles interacting along with, uh, you know, human-driven vehicles, which, uh, if you, as I understand, it, if you if you could switch everything over to autonomous immediately, the world would be a safer and better, more efficient place. But that's not going to happen. And I wondered, you know, if you see uh, cities being able to sort of encourage more rapid adoption, whether you kind of just you think that the city should just sit back and let whatever happens happen, or or something else. Is there is there a you know do you have a sort of perspective on 
the future of autonomous vehicles and the, the, the building of cities. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating topic. And uh, I'll start by saying anybody that uh, tells you they can predict the future of autonomous vehicles is lying. Mm-hmm. Um, but I certainly have seen enough to have some sense of the challenges that await and the opportunities that await. I mean, the short version that you hit on is that 40,000 people a year die on the roadways in the United States uh, as a result of motor vehicle crashes. And that is an astonishing number. Right. So if we can find ways to use technology to reduce that carnage, we have a moral obligation to do so and to be open to uh, changing policies, open to changing uh, allocation of resources, open to um, adopting these things that can help reduce the loss of life. So I think there is a real imperative here that uh, that, that cities and, and many others are, are responding to. Um, the awkward adolescence, though, is real. I mean, the technology is not mature yet. And mm-hmm. uh, we saw that tragically several weeks ago in Arizona right. where a pedestrian was killed by an autonomous vehicle undergoing testing. Um, so there is a lot of work to be done by the companies that are building this technology to really get it to the stage where uh, the safety level is enough that people can feel confident that this will solve or help solve the challenge we have rather than make it worse. Uh, there's also, though, I think a lot of questions that are really have not been explored yet about the impact of autonomous vehicles at scale. Now, you're right that there will be, in all certainty, a long period of coexistence between autonomous and non-autonomous vehicles. But what that looks like, what happens when you know, uh, three out of every 10 vehicles on the road is autonomous. It's one thing to say that I can have my self-driving taxi go from A to B in a suburban street in Arizona, but when that street is a congested, curvy downtown Boston street with pedestrians jaywalking, with uh, cyclists riding by, with seven out of 10 cars driven by humans who may be a little distracted, um, the technology is not proven in those contexts. And Um, That work has to be done as well as thinking about all of the ways in which regulation needs to be changed, curb space maybe needs to be reallocated to facilitate safe safe pickup and drop off. Uh, There may come a point where we say certain areas are restricted in terms of what types of vehicles can be there or during certain hours. You could Mm -hmm. imagine an autonomous only zone in a congested urban core or perhaps places where the uh, you know, safe and cautious behavior of autonomous vehicles actually doesn't work in high traffic conditions, and you need to right. rethink, you know, whether they're actually appropriate. Vehicles Especially for with that. Boston drivers were notoriously uh, you know, tailgating and uh, honking the, at anything that doesn't move faster than the speed limit. Well, exactly, exactly. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of more than anything. There's a there's an enormous sociological dimension to. Uh, the the shift in mobility from you know you drive your car to the car drives you mm-hmm. and I don't think we've fully explored that whether it's looking at the way autonomous vehicles impact behavior of other people on the road uh, whether it's you know how people feel about safety and uh, in different contexts how comfortable they are with vehicles being uh, present in their environment so. There's a lot of learning to do in this space, and the cities that are being forward thinking about this are using uh, the desire of companies to test the technology also as proving grounds to 
learn more about how the technology interacts with the built environment and interacts with the humans in that built environment. So here in Boston, we have an autonomous testing zone and the city is looking at how these vehicles interact at the curb space, how they pick people up. Um, You know, are there scenarios where the vehicle is Uh, you know, stops in a situation that creates a a traffic jam because of uh, overcaution, you know, and how might we work to to resolve that in the future. So I think there is this incredible learning opportunity right now, but the potential that these vehicles have to improve safety, to increase mobility if deployed in smart ways and help people who may be uh, living in places with poor transit access, stay connected to employment and educational opportunities I think the potential is huge and yeah. so um, you know Boston and many other cities are, are, are eager to, to be a part of learning how it can have positive impact right well I appreciate appreciate your perspective on that it's it's uh, it's such a hot topic and one that uh, we've had heated discussions about around our, our extended family table at Thanksgiving <laughs> you can tell as you said there's, a, there's definitely a social sociological uh, uh, tension or, or um, stress that it brings up between car lovers and uh, and uh, tech lovers and and all everyone in between uh, yeah, so yeah. I, what, I, the only other thing I'd say on, on the AVs is um, you know the Silicon Valley runs on optimism. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, while the technological progress has been tremendous, I think um, we will have some time to figure this out. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I don't. Right. I don't believe our cities are going to be overrun by with AVs in 2020. No. Um, no. So we'll have some time to sort yeah. through this. Well, good. I really, again, I really appreciate you taking time to talk. Um, I wondered if we could close out with uh, my first ever news scoop and give uh, whether you have any kind of inkling or uh, or thoughts as to where where you might uh, end up next uh, I... uh it's a great question unfortunately i have no news to break okay uh, I, I, uh, <laughs> I i i took a uh, a, a lovely three-week hiatus uh to work on my surfing skills oh nice the city of Boston, in somewhere somewhere much warmer than Boston, yeah. Uh, and so I'm back now and uh, and starting to uh, explore options for my well, next. Good. Well, I know. But, I know. The next step will be uh, will be be great, and uh, the work you've done for Boston is certainly much appreciated by all of us who uh, who spend time in the city. And uh, and again, it's been fascinating to to get your thoughts and on on just a few of these topics. There's lots of things sort of uh, obviously affecting cities and all of us and uh it, it uh it's great to get your 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 feedback and thoughts on that yeah well thank you Rusty. it's been great to talk to you it's a wonderful conversation thanks josh i appreciate making time all right yeah.